Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2015 Southern California Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Russell Roberts, the John and Jean Denault Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Well, it is, uh, it is a pleasure to be here. And I uh, join Colin in thanking you for all you do that makes Hoover possible. As I, um, I planned my trip out here, I came out <clears throat> was at the airport yesterday morning, and I, I like to find something to read. Uh, like, uh, like many people now, my life is, is overwhelmingly digital. So uh, in the old days, of course, you could not use digital devices on the uh, airplane. Now they're letting you use them for, for that crucial you know, five or six minutes when you might be without a screen, which is, you know, panic sets in. So I still, um, if you fly with a, with an, with a, um, a Kindle or, or a, um, an iPad, you can actually use them now typically. I only have my phone and my MacBook Air, which is sort of in between, and so I don't get to use it. So I buy something usually to read for those desperate six minutes of being alone with myself. <clears throat> so I was happy to see uh, the cover of Time Magazine uh, this week is Strangers Crashed My Car, Ate My Food, and Wore My Pants, uh, Tales from the Sharing Economy. So what I want to do this morning is give you a little bit of insight into the sharing economy. Some of you may not know anything about it. Some of you may know something about it. But I want to give you a, a feel for what it's about and uh, why it's important and some of the economics behind it. How many people here have taken Uber uh, to travel? So a good chunk of you. It looks like about half. Uh, how many people have stayed in the Airbnb uh, unit? A smaller number, but a few. Uh, and what these are are ways to use resources that are not being fully utilized for a variety of reasons. In the case of Uber, Uber is a chance for you to ride with a stranger in their car. Uh, it's sort of, um, I would describe it, what it really is, is a form of hitchhiking with somebody you can trust uh, for money. It's basically you're standing on a quarter and, and you're going to get somebody to pick you up who's not a cab driver. Airbnb is even weirder. You're going to go stay with a stranger in their house or possibly just rent their house for a night or for longer. Uh, but uh, the idea being that, you know, there are nights that you're going to be away from your house. Your house isn't doing anything. And that's a chance for uh, you to, to make some money along the way. And it's a chance for someone to stay there. Uh, on the sur and by the way, that, these are just two of the, more the two most prominent, I would say, examples of the so-called sharing economy. It's not literally sharing because it's usually money changing hands. Uh, but there is some, uh, some of these activities that are not commercial. But there's a whole world out there of this kind of thing going on, which some of it is bizarre. You'd think, well, that's never going to happen. But some of these things that you thought wouldn't happen do. So, for example, uh, there's Feastly. Feastly lets strangers come eat dinner with you. Um, uh, there's my favorite. Uh, I'm not a dog owner, but I love the idea of this. Dog vacay. So instead of putting your dog at a kennel, why not put your dog up with somebody who already has a dog, who already has to walk a dog, and they'll just walk your dog with their dog. Uh, there's uh, TaskRabbit. You're good at, I don't know, 
Something around the house. I'm not good at anything around the house. So it's not a, I'm a user of the service, not a provider of it. But you get online, you find people who can do stuff around your house. And it's basically a, a handyman kind of exchange where people get online and find people to help them do their stuff. So it's kind of crazy. Uh, so I'm going to start with, with Airbnb, and then I'm going to talk about Uber, and then I'll talk about why they're important to the extent that they are, or is it just some small, goofy thing that's a little bit pleasant or unpleasant, depending on the circumstances. So if you get online and you say, what is the largest hotel chain in the world? Uh, the, the top 10, you get down to the top two or, or Hilton with 650,000 rooms. Uh, and number one is Intercontinental. They have 674,000. Airbnb has over a million. So Airbnb is the largest, correctly defined in my opinion, Airbnb is the largest hotel chain in the world. Um, a million rooms every night. And as I said, sometimes you can stay with a guest, with, with the host, or you just take their house over while they're out of town or they go out of town uh, when you want to stay there. Now, this is a strange idea. Uh, I don't really like staying with friends and family members. So the idea of going to a stranger's house is really a little bit creepy. Um, and, as you, and it's even creepier, you know, especially when they're there. Uh, so this was a strange idea. And when Airbnb first proposed it, uh, they went to a, a, a wonderful uh, entrepreneurship venture fund. And, and really, it's a it's boot camp for entrepreneurs called the Y Combinator, uh, which is in Silicon Valley. And Paul Graham, who'd founded the Y Combinator, He's talking to these guys, and he says, look, this is a ridiculous idea. Obviously, it's not going to work. No one's going to want to stay at somebody's house with them, and they're not going to let anybody stay at their house. Uh, but you guys seem kind of smart, and, uh, and so uh, I, here's some other ideas, you might, things you might do. So you have five minutes to, to impress Paul Graham at this point, and uh, so about four of it, evidently, was Paul Graham talking, not them, and so they walk out of the meeting despondent. At this point, they've been in business for a year, a little over a year, and their revenue is $200 a month for, for the three or four people who are running this business. This is not working very well. And by the way, their original idea was that this is what, uh, this would be a product that would be used in what economists would call peak load problems. So there's a, a big convention in a city and all the hotel rooms get booked, the Olympics, the World Cup. There's not, no one's going to build a hotel for a, a two-week uh, every four-year kind of experience. So you've got a shortage. People end up staying in hotels you know, dozens or hundreds of miles away. So they thought this would be a way to solve that problem, particularly for, say, a conference. So instead of, they, they had gone through this personally. One of them had uh, either, I think they were hosting or, yeah, they were hosting. There was a conference of computer people. There weren't enough hotel rooms, and so they just opened up their apartment, and, and they met some really interesting people, and they really liked it. So they said, maybe we can make money doing this. But they weren't. They were making $200, $200 a month. So they, they tell Paul Graham about the idea. He says, this is a stupid idea. No one wants to do this. And as they walked out, they gave him a box of cereal. As a fundraiser, they had created, this was in 2008, they had created... Uh, Obama O's and uh, something Captain McCain's, I think, were the two cereals. And they had a, a fun design. It was this sort of collector's item. And they gave one of them, uh, I think it was probably the McCain's, because they, uh, they didn't sell as well. And I thought, you know, they knew better about who was going to win that election probably than anybody. So they gave him this thing of cereal and they, as they left, sort of despondent. And Paul Gray said, well, what's this? Oh, it's a present for you. Well, what is it? Oh, 
we, we made these up as a fundraiser. Well, how much money did you raise? Well, $30,000. And then he got into it. And he realized, these guys are really talented. And he said, you know what? I'm going to take your idea, even though this is stupid, but you'll learn, you'll learn a lot, and I'll help you, and you'll find something more productive to do. So the first thing he told him was, he said, why don't you go? He said, where are most of your hosts? New York City. He said, well, you shouldn't be here in San Francisco. You, you need to leave and go out to the East Coast. And they met with the entire group of all their hosts in New York City. There were 30. It was easy to do. And they basically said to them, how would you like it if we hired a professional photographer for you to make your online presence of your house or apartment more visually compelling? Well, they thought that was great. And the, of course, it turned out the photographer was one of the Airbnb founders. And they, took, they wandered around, took pictures, made it look better. And within three months, they were making $4,500 a month. So they, they were doing okay. That was 2009. New Year's Eve this year, New Year's Eve, 500,000 people stayed at Airbnb across 190 countries. I mean, that is just mind-boggling. You know, I told you that Hilton has 650,000 rooms. Think about that. Airbnb on that one night had 500,000 rooms being filled with people staying through their service. Incredible. Um, now, how does this work? And the answer is, obviously, it works through the web. The main reason it's feasible and successful, and it doesn't break down because there's, there are bad people in the world, both potential hosts and potential guests, the reason it works, it works is because they have figured out a way, and this is true of all these services, figured out a way to create trust among people who don't know each other. And that is a tremendous achievement. The way it's done, of course, is through ratings. You rate the host, and the host rates you as the guest. And that's a, uh, a beautiful thing. Let's talk about Uber. Most, of you, most A good chunk of you have done it. So the way it works... I did this yesterday. I had lunch, and uh, when I get in, I went to West L.A., and I had lunch in the Pico-Robertson area, and I needed to get out here, so I punched my cell phone. It pulls up. I, pull, I, I punched the Uber app on my cell phone, which is an app you don't have to pay for. And by the way, the way you register for Uber is it's just a beautiful thing. You, you take a photograph with your smartphone of your credit card. Uber take, has your credit card now. They... No money ever changes hands with the driver or me. I push the Uber app. I tell the, the drivers, all the Uber drivers in the area find out where I am. The closest one is sent to me. I tell them where I want to go. They take me here to the hotel. Oh, my favorite thing is a worrier. I'm a worrier, right? When I call a cab, I'm always worried, are they going to come on time? I've got a flight to the airport. I can see on my phone a map of where I am and where the Uber driver is who's heading my way. I get a picture of his face, typically. I see his license plate, the kind of car he drives, and his rating, how he has been rated by previous uh, riders. Uh, it's on a scale of five. I'm told that if it drops below 4.6, they're fired. So they have to earn the trust of their, of their, uh, of their customers. That guy comes. He picks me up. <clears throat> We have a pleasant conversation on the way over here. I get out of the car, I'm done. I don't give him a penny, I don't tip him, I don't give him a credit card. 
you think about cabs, I don't know about you, but when I travel, I'm always worried about if I'm in New York City or a place where I know I'm going to take a lot of cabs. Do I have enough cash? Because think about how strange this is. It's a novelty that the cab driver takes a credit card, right? That's a bizarre thing. Why is that? Because they don't have to be so competitive. They have a, typically a monopoly, and they're not as responsive to the customer as they might otherwise be. The ride from West LA to here cost me $24.95 for a 35-minute ride. I have a feeling that's 180, it's a big cab fare, I just, I'm guessing. I had a pleasant time. If I hadn't liked the music, he would have eagerly turned it off because that he was playing. I kind of liked it, so I didn't say anything. But he wants to get a five-star rating from me, uh, which I gave him. Um, it's uh, an amazing thing. So what are these guys doing? What they're doing, what these companies are doing, is they're matchmakers. They're matching people who have a service or can provide a service with a customer who wants the service. Why didn't that happen before? Well, the simple answer in economic jargon is transaction costs. It's expensive to find people who want to make a deal with each other, and it's much more, even more expensive or problematic to find people who can trust each other who don't already know each other. And that's what these uh, websites and, and platforms have been able to do. Uh, on New Year's Eve this year, so we had 500,000 people staying in uh, Airbnb properties. Two million people took Uber on New Year's Eve. Two million people. Um, I was in Boston for a meeting this, earlier this year, and I got an Uber ride from the airport, and I asked the guy how he liked, uh, how he liked driving. I always ask him, how do you like driving for Uber? They always say they love it. Uh, he said, well, I love it, but it's not very good right now. This is early January. I said, why not? He goes, well, the students aren't here. And he said, I forget the number, 60 or 80% of their business is students. Now think about how strange that is. That's Boston. Boston's a college town. But still, I thought, well, I know college students typically don't have a car. But the other thing, my son's a student in New York, and he uses Uber all the time. The reason is, is that college students travel in groups. So when three or four people want to go somewhere, instead of getting in their car, which they typically don't have, instead of getting in a cab, they get an Uber now. It's an incredibly inexpensive thing to do. Now, oh, just my own personal favorite Uber Airbnb story. I'm in, I'm in uh, at Stanford last summer. I go out with my family when I'm not at the beautiful Washington office. And I go out, we go out to Stanford, and we stayed this year in an Airbnb house. Uh, somebody who, had, who wanted to go away for the summer and rented their house to us. So I did an interview with Nathan Blacharsik, who is one of the founders of Airbnb for my weekly podcast, Econ Talk. So I went downtown on the train, and I walked to their offices, and I interviewed the founder in, in their headquarters in San, downtown San Francisco. But then I had to hurry to get back to uh, down south, and I didn't have time to walk back to the train station. I had to get a, an Uber. I, I, did, I was in a hurry to catch a particular train. So I asked the assistant of the, the executive, I said, I assume it's easy to get an Uber around here. Oh, yeah, it's no problem. So I'm packing up my equipment in the room we did the recording. I punch the Uber app. I request an UberX car. UberX is the cab-like service. And I pull my, I get my bag, I close the zipper, and as I get through the door of the conference room, the phone rings, and it's the Uber driver saying, where are you? I said, well, I'm trying to get on the elevator. Give me a chance. But that's how responsive 
it is, and it just, it's an amazing experience. So uh, having said all that, and I'm a big fan of these things, a lot of people hate them. They have a lot of enemies, and I want to talk about those enemies and, and what's going on there. So I understand, you can understand why cab drivers don't like Uber. It's a huge competitor. You can understand why hotels don't like Airbnb, huge competitor. One of their claims is, they have two sort of claims. Oh, it's, it's dangerous. You don't have the protection as a consumer. And I, I actually prefer the protection of the votes of the previous customers than I do of a government inspector going around my hotel room or my, or my cab, right? Now, having said that, Uber, every once in a while, there's a bad story of an Uber driver raped a woman in India. Of course, that made huge headlines. Uh, India, unfortunately, has a rape problem. I, I, people say that there are Indian cab drivers who also do bad things, of course. They don't get any publicity because it's not a news story. But anytime an Uber driver does anything bad around the world, it's a big story. And of course, it's a big story partly because Uber's competitors want that story to get around and they promote those. Uh, and Uber does some bad things. They, they've uh, they threatened reporters <laughs> with uh, revealing information about him if they write bad things about them. So that, uh, their, their political savvy is a little bit on the short side. Uh, so I have to say that up front. But the bottom line is, is that there's, this is all about money, mostly. People who have vested interests facing a new, uh, a new entrant who can really do some damage to their, their income stream. And in particular, in the case of cab drivers, they have paid large sums for the medallions that give them the opportunity to be one of the few drivers of the cab, so naturally they resent uh, deeply, and it hurts their pocketbook to see this new competition. Um, the other reason that Uber is, is unpopular is surge pricing. And as an economist, surge pricing is like my favorite thing about Uber. Most people I think it's awful. So surge pricing works like this. It's a rainy night or a snowy night or a really scary night. We'll talk about that why in a sec. But cars are scarce. Cabs are impossible to get in these kind of situations. They're, you know, I sound like Yogi Berra. It's so crowded, nobody goes there anymore. Obviously, uh, somebody's getting a cab. But there are, a simple way to say it as an economist, there are more people who want cabs than there are cabs available when it's snowing, raining, uh, or there's a crisis. And so what Uber does, and this is just a phenomenally, to me, beautiful thing, but to many people, offensive thing. What Uber does is they raise their fares, and the driver gets something like 70 to 80% of the fare. Okay, so remember, all these, in all these cases, Uber and Airbnb are taking a little slice of the revenue to make this transaction between the two users. That's their profit margin. So when it's bad weather or crisis or simply whatever it is, more people want cabs than are cabs available, Uber has an algorithm that raises the price that they charge you, and they tell you. They say, surge pricing in effect. Your fare will be 1.4x the usual fare, 40% higher. But sometimes it's 4x. It's four times higher, okay? Now, if that bothers you, my answer is put your phone back in your pocket. It really, is it really this complicated? If you don't like the price, don't use the service. But people don't feel that way. They're not economists. So I want to try to get into their head for a minute and give you a little idea of why Uber is unpopular with the surge pricing and why I still think it's a good thing. The most recent 
dramatic example of this, there was a hostage terrorist incident in Sydney, Australia. Do you remember this? This was about a month ago, six weeks ago. And people were in this area where this cafe was that hostages were being held. A lot of people wanted to get out of there. And Uber put in surge pricing because obviously, I forgot to mention, what surge pricing does is it doesn't just tell you, if you don't really need a cab, don't take one, right? That, if, you don't really, if, you can, if you can do without a ride or you can wait a while, don't take one. That's one thing a higher price does, right? But the really other important thing it does is it says, if you're an Uber driver and you want to make some extra money, get in your car, which is a fabulous Fabulous thing. So surge pricing went in effect in Sydney, Australia. I, was, I think it was 4X. So I, the, the, the number I heard was, if you wanted to get to, this, to the, I mean, this is a bizarre thing. This is what I read, or at least my memory of it. If you wanted to get to the Sydney airport, it was $125. I guess it, maybe it's usually 30 on Uber. Something like that, I'm guessing. I don't know exactly, don't quote it. But evidently, it was a very large number relative to usual. And, I don't know, I, I, I guess this, I don't know why it was a trip to the airport. I guess the hostaging was so scary. People said, not only do I want to get out of this neighborhood, I'm getting out of the country, or I'm getting out of the city at least. So I, I don't know exactly what was going on there, but for some reason that figure got quoted. Now, when you argue with people, I got into a number of uh, wars on Twitter about this uh, incident. What people say who are against this, they, they say a couple things. The one thing they say is, well, it shouldn't only be rich people who can get out of this area, okay? Now, my view is $125 is a lot of money, but there are a lot of non-rich people who can't afford it. They may choose not to, but it's not, it, it's not uh, decisively stopping somebody from taking a ride to the airport. But it's true. As prices get higher, rich people are more able or more likely to, to buy a service. That's one answer they have, the critics. The other answer the critics have, and this is a little more philosophically interesting, is that, well, you know, it's just wrong. It's wrong to take advantage of people, to exploit them when they're scared, or when it's snowing, or when it's raining, and it's just wrong. And my answer to that always is, great, you get in your car. You go pick up some strangers. Evidently, there aren't, an, when, when the price, when search pricing goes into effect, what that says is there are not enough people willing to pick up other people who want to get picked up. And this is a good thing. We want more people to get picked up in a crisis. And their attitude is, and I understand this attitude, it's a nice attitude, people shouldn't have to be incentivized to do the right thing. That's a good point. It's a nice world. I would rather live in a world where everybody got together and said, hey, there's a crisis. You know, let's head toward the terrorists, right? Right? That's the, uh, that, I've not seen American Sniper, but they use a metaphor in there that I've read elsewhere, which I really like, which is they're sheep and they're sheepdogs. The sheep run away from danger. The sheepdogs head into the flames. The sheepdog heads toward the, the violence, toward the crisis. And unfortunately, for better or for worse, most people run away. So to get people to come to the crisis, to get people to go to that area. Remember, most people are trying to get away from the cafe area. So you're telling people, couldn't you do the right thing and come in here because there are a lot of people who want to get away? And the answer is, I'd rather not. And so what Uber says is, we'll, think about this. I, I almost said this wrong. I want to say what Uber says is, we'll pay you to come in. But that's not what's happening. Uber isn't paying them to come in. We are the users of the service. We're saying, if we still request when it's a four-time surge price, we're saying, please come get me. 
And, and you think that's a bad thing? Well, people do. I want to point out one thing in here that I think is often forgotten. Really a beautiful thing. Is that in the aftermath of these events, we have a philosophical debate about what should have happened or what would have been better or wouldn't it be nice if or it's wrong that. And what we forget is there's a very precious thing that Uber is unintentionally creating in the middle of a crisis like this, and that is information. Think about how hard it is to realize that there is a crisis going on and people would like to be picked up and taken out of this area. How do you find out about that? Well, if you're an Uber driver, you get a text that says, hey, surge pricing now affecting this neighborhood in Sydney, and a bunch of people respond to that like they're sheepdogs, right? They say, I'm going in. I'm going to make four times what I usually make. They go in. It's not just that, oh, well, I'm not sure that's the right thing. That seems unfair, blah, blah, blah. What it's really saying is, is that a bunch of people got an alarm that they wouldn't otherwise have gotten that there's a desperate demand for the service. And I want to give you another example from my personal life, which illustrates this. We used to live in St. Louis, Missouri, my family and I, and we, were, we wanted to build a porch on the back of our house. So I went to an architect, and I said, how much would a porch cost of this sort of quality? We talked through it. He said, well, this is going to cost about $10,000. And I said, that's good. We can afford that. He drew up the plans. We went out and got the bids. The bids were all around eighteen dollars to $25,000. They were more than twice, the best, the, the most attractive ones, were more than twice what he had said. And I thought, this guy took advantage of me. He wanted the, the job, so he told me it would only end up costing me about ten. And so we drew up the plans, and I, he, he like, underestimated what the real cost is. Well, that isn't what happened. What happened was, I'd forgotten that six months before, there, three months, I can't remember when, there'd been a big flood when the, Missouri, when the Mississippi River flooded. And a lot of people lost their houses or had damaged under their house. So any carpenter within 500 miles was really busy repairing people's houses. And so if you wanted to pull them away from that, which was a very lucrative opportunity, you had to pay a premium to get them to build a porch. So they said, when they saw my bid, well, you know, I'm doing this other stuff. I'm, I'm swamped. Bad use of words. Sorry about that. I'm overwhelmed. with. I have very little scarce time. So to get me to build this porch, I can't do it for 10 anymore. I'm going to have to take 20. So we decided, without the, I didn't think about it at the time. I thought, this isn't worth it. I'm going I'm to I'm wait a while. Well, we went back, and we got, ended up getting, I can't remember exactly what happened, but the bids that came in after we waited a while, like six months later, were much lower and closer to what the architect had said. And what had happened is the price of the porch was an alarm that said, hey, step aside. Would you let these carpenters do something more valuable than your porch? And the answer would have been, if you told me that, I would have said, yeah, I can wait six months. If somebody's house has been destroyed, I'll wait on my porch. But I didn't have to know anything about it. The price sent me the signal. The price was the alarm bell that said, we've got a crisis here. You please step aside, unless it's really urgent and really important. And that's what prices do. They send information that allows people to make decisions, taking into account. I took into account the person who wanted to get their house built. Not deliberately. I didn't take it into account. But I did the right thing. I didn't build my porch so the carpenter could fix somebody's house. And the only reason I did it is because the price told me so. 
And similarly, what surge pricing does for Uber is it says, if you don't need a cab, this is not a good night for a casual, frivolous use of a ride. Only take a ride now if you really, really want it. And that's good. Because that tells people, there's, not literally tells people there's something going on more important than you, than your smaller project that isn't so important. But that's effectively what happens. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. Um, let's close with the significance of, um, of this, these phenomena. So the first thing is it's an end around the regulatory process. It reduces the need for government. One of the things government does in local in its local application is it inspects hotels, it, it gives clearance to cab drivers, it monitors their performance. And all of a sudden, those tasks are not so valuable anymore because we're doing it on our own through our, the ratings that I talked about. And so it's not surprising that governments are hostile to Uber and hostile to Airbnb and these other types of things. Uh, the other thing it does, which is fascinating to me, is it gives people human contact. We're living in an increasingly digital world where our children spend and grandchildren spend time on screens in this strange life that for those of us who grew up without it can't fully understand. It's a bizarre existence. And despite that, people want human interaction. So I have over 450 episodes of EconTalk up online free of charge at econtalk.org. How many people here listen to EconTalk fairly regularly? Oh, one, good. So the rest of you, the rest of you, if you want more of me, there's 450 hours of me, which is way too much, where you can listen to your heart's content. I interview authors, economists, historians, organic farmer, the man who sold me my car, and when I had a horrible experience, I said, would you like to come on my program and talk about why it is that I can be ecstatic when I buy a $20 item at a, in a, uh, on Amazon and when I buy a $25,000 item, I'm furious? Do you want to chat about that a little bit? Because you think about that seems kind of strange. So anyway, so it's a great thing. Econ Talk's really fun for me. helps me get smart. I get to talk to people who are smarter than I am. But you can spend 450 hours with me and yet, you're also happy to come out and see me face to face. Uh, although, actually, you know, we have one person here, but the other people are all at home thinking, well, I don't need to go see him. I can listen to him on the internet anytime I want. <laughs> but I think, I think most people do like face to face in a digital world still. And what a lot of these services are providing, which is, again, for me, it'd be a, a drawback, but for a lot of people, it's, it's a plus, is the chance to, I mean, I don't, again, I don't, I, I love eating alone because I read my book, uh, or the mag or magazine, or newspaper. Uh, I'm happy to eat, I I eat every night at home with my family. Uh, but I really don't want to. I'm not so eager to eat dinner with a bunch of strangers. But for some people, that's an enormous plus. So some of these food services, by the way, that are in the sharing economy, it's like a takeout business. So I'm cooking for you, and I'll deliver it to you. But a lot of them, you come to my house, and if you go to Feastly, which is fascinating, if you go to Feastly and you ask, and you, and you search through it, you can find out what people say about, oh, no, these people, their, their home is lovely, the food was beautifully presented, the conversation was fabulous. It's really an amazing thing that's about this face-to-face -face thing. So that's the other thing that's, that's going on. So we're, on the surface, 
This is important because it's using resources more effectively. It's giving people the opportunity to make money with skills or houses or cars that aren't being fully used. That's all nice. But it's also giving people this face-to-face -face interaction that they might not otherwise have. But the last thing, and this really dwarfs all of this, is that we're on the cusp of some really extraordinary social changes that are going to be driven by these services. And again, I, it's really nice that in the World Cup, this is an amazing statistic, it might be true. <laughs> I heard it from the Airbnb co-founder, so it could be exaggerated, but he told me that 20% of the guests who came to Brazil for the World Cup stayed in an Airbnb place. And that, that's a phenomenal thing, right? That's just, that's just great, I love that. But it's dwarfed by what I think is coming with Uber. So you may know, Uber is currently valued at $40 billion, which is shocking. It's a privately held company, but that's the, uh, the implicit valuation for, that investors have, have gotten. It's shocking because on the surface, it's a cab company that is struggling to get a foothold in many cities because existing cab companies are stopping them. You know, they're banned in various cities, they're limited in various cities, and why are they valued at $40 billion? And the answer is, is because the real home run that Uber's gonna provide is Uber with a driverless car. So what you're gonna do is you're gonna punch your button and say, come get me, and a driverless car is gonna come to your house, pick you up, and it's not gonna be a literal car, because it's not gonna look like a car, it's gonna be a really pleasant space, it'll have music, or food, or who knows what it'll have. Competition will create wonderful things inside that experience. And you will get in this personal capsule, and it may be a drone before you know, it's over, but, but a, car, a driverless car is, I think, gonna be a reality in the next few years. You'll get in that vehicle, it'll take you to where you wanna go safely. And then you start to think about that. Why do you own a car other than to show off to your neighbors? And there'll be other ways to do that. I don't know what they'll be, but, but a car is a very expensive and inefficient way to show off to your neighbors, which is one of the reasons it's good, effective for showing off, by the way. But a lot of people are going to say, you know, that's not for me. So I go the other way. I have a Honda Accord, and I love to brag about the fact that my cleaning lady drives a nicer car than I do, which is, you know, it's just interesting to me. But think about this. Why do you own a car? Your car, my car, sits in the driveway about 95% of its life thinking, hey, where's the action, right? <laughs> if it's a driverless car, it's wandering around the city, picking people up and moving them around, and you don't need, all of a sudden you start thinking about what that does to, to life. It means you don't need as many cars, which is a good thing for your country. It means you don't need a, the same width of road that you need. It means that downtown is totally different. You can get from place to place. It changes where you're gonna live. Traffic's gonna change because these cars can move in tandem. They can move together very quickly without colliding using technology. You're only gonna save about a million lives a year around the world, about 30,000 in the United States. It's a unbelievable life-changing, culture-changing experience that is probably coming. And I think it was two days ago or yesterday, I read that Uber is working on a robotic uh, car factory to create its own driverless car. Google is getting into the Uber business. They're gonna try to find ways to use their driverless car technologies. 
And this is all part of the real underlying technology that's changing the world, which is this. Uh, I think there are about 6.8 billion cell phone subscriptions around the world. Think about that. There are about 7 billion people. Now, some people have more than one. We know that. But we're very close to a world. And I interviewed Mark Andreessen, founder of Netscape, uh, you know, partner in Andreessen Horowitz, one of the most important venture capital firms in the Valley, who uh, was one of the funders of, of a lot of these companies. He made the point that when 7 billion people have a smartphone, and if you can find a way for those 7 billion people to transact commercially online through that smartphone, you change the value proposition for all kinds of things about what is possible and what is not possible, which is why he is a major investor in Bitcoin. And if you've heard of Bitcoin, a lot of people think Bitcoin's a replacement currency for, say, the dollar. I don't think that's going to happen. What is going to happen, and the reason Bitcoin's important and not some goofy, weird, little, bizarre thing off in a corner, is that Bitcoin is a way, right now, may not make it, but right now, promises to be a way that allows me, when I sell you something, to trust that your dollars are going to come into my bank account. Right now, that's a little bit iffy, either because you don't have a credit card, which is true for most of the world's population, or because your credit card may not be uh, legit. And so I have to pay a relatively large fee to protect myself as a vendor from your bad credit card. If Bitcoin is possibly going to allow you and I to make small transactions through our smartphones without worry that there's fraud, that's an enormous change in the world uh, of, of commerce. We'll have 7 billion people able to make small transactions with confidence, as, as opposed to a few hundred million, which is what we have right now, maybe a billion. That's going to change everything, and all of this is uh, all part of that. All the sharing economy stuff is a way that we're typically using our smartphones to interact with strangers, do commerce, and do it in a world of trust. It's a beautiful thing. I think it's ultimately, now it's, I'll close with Adam Smith. Um, Adam Smith believed that commerce civilized us. And I think he is right. Commerce has a bad rap. Commerce is, in, in our popular culture is how we take advantage of other people. In Adam Smith's vision, commerce is how we put ourselves in the shoes of other people, our customers, and figure out what they want. And the better you do that, the more money you make. And I think he was on to something. Thank you very much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.